Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have American author Kurt Vonnegut. At the time of this interview, back in the year 2000, Vonnegut was 77 years old and was in Indianapolis promoting an upcoming ACLU fundraising event. In this wide-ranging interview, Vonnegut talks about freedom of speech, civil rights, God and religion, his love for Indianapolis, and his time spent as a prisoner of war. Hi, I'm Kurt Vonnegut. I'm looking for Thornton Mellon. Uh, as always, we have music critic Mark Allen at the helm conducting the interview. If you'd like to support the show, please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. There, we post other content and information not available on the podcast. If you'd like to read the transcripts for any of our episodes, please head over to our website at thetapesarchive.com. We'll jump into the interview after a quick word from our sponsors. The Tapes Archive is proud to be sponsored by the true crime documentary, Dead Man's Line. You've got a hundred armed officers around here trying to get a shot at me. I dared him to shoot me. I didn't go down there to be a buffoon. I went down there for vengeance. And God, God, I'll have vengeance. In 1977, Tony Karitsis kidnapped a mortgage broker and held him captive for three days. For the first time ever, the media was able to cover the event live. To some, Tony was a hero. To others, he was a crazed thug. Dead Man's Line. The true story of Tony Karitsis. This award-winning film is available exclusively on Amazon Prime. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. The whole suicide parlors, uh-huh. which you wrote about it yeah. in time and Timbo. Yeah. It seems incredibly prescient now. Does it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it always would have been that. A worthwhile business to open. <laughs> I think it would have been quite, you know, because people would have threatened if you don't shut up, I'm going down to the green roof, the purple roof. <laughs> well, what made you think about that? Well, if you're in my business, you just sit around all day thinking up neat stuff. You know, most people don't do that. <laughs> Did you ever think that that something even close to that would really come true? Well, I actually, I well, everything I do has everything but originality. And uh, what put me in mind of it was a, a German surviving the Second World War. I said, what a wonderful business that would have been in Germany at the end of the war for Germans themselves to, to go and commit suicide. And now when you when you look at a, a Jack Kevorkian, I guess yeah. it's the, <laughs> the logical extension. Well, we sent him a copy of the book of Who's God Bless You, Dr. Kevorkian, <laughs> and uh, got a friendly letter back. But I'm, I'm on his side, but I understand why it's a bad idea legally. You do? Why, why do you think it's a bad idea? Giving permission. Well, is during the 30s, of course, is euthanasia. The thing was going on as a political policy in Germany is to get rid of the weak or the insane or, or, or whatever. And so that temptation is always going to be there for someone who wants gets too much power and wants to get rid of enemies or actually wants to clean up the society, according to his or her light. Yeah. No, I... I uh, but when you wrote about it, you were writing about 
people taking their, their lives of their own free will, saying, yeah. I've had enough, yeah. it's time to go. Yeah, no, I think it's probably all right. I mean, you think course, that's okay? Well, again, it has everything to do with originality. Is, is what the Greeks said was fair about life, is if you didn't like it, you leave. It must be interesting though, to see... Uh, to see some of the things that you wrote about long ago come true, or, or at least come closer to... Uh, well, I've seen amazing things. Is that I've seen lynching stop. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen black people allowed to vote. I've seen black people allowed to ride anywhere in a bus. <laughs> they were gone mad. <laughs> Do you think you've seen progress? Oh, yes, in civil rights, you bet. And, uh, of course, Thomas Jefferson is, you know, the most popular of all our political ancestors, I suppose. Right with the Declaration of Independence and all that, did not see women or blacks as remotely equal <laughs> to white males. And uh, it's quite something to have the founder of the country with those particular attitudes. But those guys... And Voltaire, who's a hero of mine, who's a speculator in slaves as a commodity. Imagine them at some kind of commodity market. And great people, the great thinkers of uh, roughly contemporaries of, of, of Jefferson's greatest minds of the times, were operating on natural law, is what nature's intentions apparently were. And uh, it seemed to them that these black people were intended by nature to be servants of, of uh, white people with better minds and, and nobler codes of ethics. That was just perfectly natural. That's what they saw in nature. And they saw, you know, if women are smaller, <laughs> a guy can easily beat up a dame. Why, uh, you know, that, that, that nature wants that to be the case, too. What about progress in other areas? Do you, do you feel like technological progress has been good? No, not necessarily. Is that, uh, ordinarily, if, you, if you're going to uh, build a factory, is, and this is quite new too and good, is, is you know there will be an environmental impact study of what the hell it's going to do to the to the aquifer <laughs> and to the atmosphere and uh, and all that and. Uh, there is no such study made when uh, when something as radical as a creation of the most important person in any house, which is a machine, the most influential person, which is a TV. Well, as they say, you can't fight progress and all that, and that's fine. What I've got is a master's degree in anthropology. That was my field after a while. And uh, from the University of Chicago. And, and so mess with a person's culture this is a very permanent part of the personality. And this person naturally grows. Uh, the culture becomes a part of the person about as easily as you can fool around with his or her kidneys. Her <laughs> 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 pancreas. But there are these radical surgeries that are being performed on uh, human psyches by new electronic devices. I can regret the loss of, of human experiences. Is, is it, uh, so much about human beings and what they can do is now being discounted. And certainly for people of the past, it was a great adventure of people with any sort of mind of becoming, of finding out what 
this thing is here, right here, is is what what's inside our skull. And now Bill Gates is saying, hey, you don't have to become anymore. Your computer's going to become. Just wait till next year when you see what the computer can do. And and so it's left to be proud of all the time as a human being. So that's destructive of morale. And I, uh, but at, at the same time, I, the only uh, response certainly I'm not going to have our legislatures outlaw TV or any kind of TV program because uh, our First Amendment absolutist, which leaves you powerless, uh, <laughs> or with a computer a mania. I had a son-in-law who almost disappeared into his, you know. <laughs> yeah, you had to pull him away from it and wake him up. But what you can do is you can retreat from it. And I mean, you know, we were talking about if you don't like life, <laughs> you can always leave. And uh, if you don't like all this technological stuff, you can put together some kind of life apart from it. And of course, the grotesque example of somebody who did that long before there were technologies like ours was Henry David Thoreau. But he was protecting his soul and uh, his personality, and it's harder and harder to do that. You're going to come here uh, in September, I guess, yes. to talk about censorship. Well, I'm going to talk about ACLU, yeah, yeah. Right. but I've been a lifelong supporter of it. I've been a supporter of the ACLU before Indiana had a chapter for <laughs> Are you surprised Indiana has a chapter? <laughs> Not now, no. Years ago, I, I spoke at, uh, at some anniversary celebration of the ACLU in Louisville, and they were having some trouble with state cops who, I forget what it was, who you know, acting like Nazis. <laughs> and, and they wanted a chapter of the ACLU in order to have a rational fight going and founded their chapter down there long before there was one here. I think there were efforts to found one here. and, and But that's even more of a border state <laughs> than we are. But at the anniversary meeting where I spoke, and I'm just you know, full of shit as usual, they had the founders stand up, and there were about six of these sweet old guys. And I said, oh, my God, there they are again. It's in any town. can be a dentist, anything. And decided, got down with the Bill of Rights, must be enforced. Are you surprised that how, pe- how easily people are willing to give those away to, to pass off their rights? Well, they take them away from other people, I think. Right, they'll take them away. Yeah. And there are plenty of people who just say, okay. Well, I'm going to talk about that some, and I've talked about it before, but there, Thomas Aquinas had a hierarchy of laws. There's God's law. Don't mess with that. There's nature's law, and that's what Thomas Jefferson saw. That's why women and black people or people of color should be subservient to white intellectuals. And... Then there's man's law. And I say the ACLU is always going to court, you know, with a deck of cards where the highest card they've got is the queen, which is man's law. (laughs) 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 There are all these people, you know, because they play natural law, tops the queen, that's the king, and the ace. And so that happens again and again and again. And the people who who uh, want to take away other people's right to speak, speak their minds or whatever, 
are playing the ace. You can imagine that the, uh, the Civil Liberties Union doesn't play terrifically in Indiana. No, what they well, in political campaigns, national campaigns, forget Indiana. They'll talk about somebody as being the card-carrying member of the ACLU. But you see it, obviously, as a, as a very good thing to do. Yes, of course. The most recent case here has been about posting the Ten Commandments. Yes. They want to post them in schools and in public buildings and things like that. What do you think of that? If you must, you can take a lawyer's view of it and have the Bill of Rights, which is as strong as respectable a body of regulations as, as uh, traffic laws, is you can't park by a fire plug and uh, you can't keep people from assembling and, and, and complaining about this or that government or whatever. All right, you got me here because... I only know the first commandment. I don't know where the other said it. <laughs> but thou shalt have no other God before me. The Bill of Rights, first amendment written by James Madison, I believe, will not allow that to be in school. Adultery? Yes, that's disruptive to the society, surely. And murder? My God. And all the others. But anything that uh, has specifically to do with the... Jewish or the Christian religion, this cannot be posted in a school. It's all right, the rest of the commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Please, let's put it in every school. So the principles of the commandments are, <clears throat> you're saying the principles are great, but the but the idea of posting this and posting somebody's religion the first in a school. The first commandment. And of course, it, it was very wise is whether Moses actually spoke to God or not, or whether God spoke to him. He was trying to maintain peace in a society which was on the run then, you know. And there were fights breaking out every night. This is a whirring wagon trains moving west in this country. And he set these basic rules. Keep your hands off other people's wives. Don't sass your parents. And all these are fine. Let's go over the Ten Commandments and, and uh, throw out any which insist that we be either a Christian or a Jew. We've talked in, in the past about public education and yeah. how much you appreciate and bringing. My free education, my God, is that, you know, I had to buy notebook fillers. <laughs> when you went to school... Obviously, it's quite a bit different than, than the schools that the kids go to now. Well, I think one of, the, one of the things is, I bet when you went to school, no matter what, I mean, no matter how much money people had or didn't have, that the parents sent the kids ready to learn and ready to respect the teacher and, and prepared to be quiet and listen and take it in. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yes, but there was over... 50% of marriages now go bust. So just statistically, there aren't such families anymore. And this isn't because of sex madness or anything like that. It's the nature of the economy and the nature of our entertainment and so forth. But yes, so, uh, well, I remember we had, I won't say what his name was, but we had one doctor who uh, was a sort of our family doctor and everybody stopped speaking to him because he got divorced. But again, that's a violation of the Ten Commandments, and which are great rules for maintaining peace in any kind of society. Yes, God said that. <laughs> Play the ace. Do you, do you believe in God? If you don't mind my asking. Um, no, hell, I don't mind your asking. Is is I'm uh, honorary president of the American Humanist Association, having succeeded Isaac Asimov. 
in that capacity. And, and uh, yes, it's, it's, there's a wonderful quotation by Nietzsche. This is my hereditary religion anyway. My parents, grandparents on both sides of the family uh, were so-called free thinkers. And uh, Nietzsche said, only a person of deep faith can afford the luxury of skepticism. And sure, it's hell, something enormously important and interesting is going on. Uh, but I don't want to take Jerry Falwell's word for <laughs> for what it is. And actually, uh, my ancestors who, who came over here, first the earliest ones came over before the Civil War. I had one ancestor on my mother's side who lost a leg in the Civil War battle. They were Catholic, and but they were also educated. They were very interested in science. And when when Darwin came along, this was very convincing and interesting to them. And so, uh, literal acceptance of the Bible, the creationism and all that, uh, was no longer possible for them. But they were sure as hell interested. Whatever it was that was going on, and, and also how much family has been in, in, in Indianapolis for a long time, as frequently as merchants or architects or whatever, and they have behaved with great honesty, I think always. Very honest in their dealings and uh, did not leave lead crazy sex life. So without what the humanist behaves well without any expectation of rewards or punishments in an afterlife. And they serve, as indeed my ancestors in Indianapolis have done, serve the only abstraction of which they, with which they have any familiarity, which is the community. And that's been enough. Well, I figured there was a word for what I am, and now oh. I know what it is. I'm a humanist. Yes. Yeah. But uh, it was before the First World War, uh, you would have called yourself a, a free thinker, but that was so specifically German. Well, I, and I had been calling myself an atheist. Yeah. I'm not sure that that no. covers or you could, Or you could, you know, you trying to trim your sail exactly and everything is, is uh, oh, well, I'm an agnostic. Mm -hmm. I really don't know or nothing. But anyway, it turns out that some people are so scared by life and should be that they'll take somebody else's word for what's going on and, and you know, accept Jesus or whatever. And, and uh, I'm all for that. And one interesting thing, you know, not that you think, I'm, this is bad what's been said already, that I'm a humanist. Yes, I'm really very interested in socialism, as in economic justice, some sort of economic fair play. And what, when I worked with General Electric, it bore a week against socialism, and, and Ronald Reagan was working for the company at the same time. <laughs> Boy, was he ever against socialism. Well, of course, their company was against socialism because, it, you know, it, labor was a commodity <laughs> and if the working people decided they were entitled to more than they were getting is that you know this is going to be very expensive <laughs> messy <laughs> but there's a you know Karl Marx was invited to address a Marxist society in London <laughs> he refused to do it because he wasn't a Marxist <laughs> but uh, what makes 
It's religion. Sticking that in American cross, and of course this would be any civil libertarian too, is their religion is the opiate of the masses. And in fact, what Marx was saying, and you know he was a friend of the poor and the powerless, is it was a comfort to them. And he realized this. And he was glad that such comfort existed. And he himself was grateful to opiates, probably to opium itself in treating pain when he had a toothache or a headache or whatever, you know. And uh, it was Lenin and Stalin and, and uh, people like that, Castro, I suppose, who used this as an excuse to silence preachers because, you know, they have enormous power. Every Sunday they're just going to get stand up there and say almost anything. <laughs> people will believe it. <laughs> yeah, but he, he was... He was speaking well of religion and, and, and not ill of it. And, and my particular hero, who was Voltaire, the speculator in slaves into the commodity, he had a lot of employees. And he had awful opinions of the Catholic Church, of the hierarchy, and particularly of the Jesuits. But he realized how important, how comforting this religion nonetheless was to his employees. So he never let them know what he felt about their faith and limited his conversation to people on his own social and intellectual level. And I would do the same. And I, I would, what my particular war buddy was a Roman Catholic with Bernard V. O'Hare, who became finally a district attorney after the war and a criminal a defense attorney. But anyway, he lost his faith during the war. It was, you know, it was such a mess uh, that he gave up on Roman Catholicism. And I loved him, and I hated to see him do that. I realized that uh, this was something very important and honorable, if you could believe it. When I first came here, which was uh, in 1988, the, the quote I always heard attributed to you about Indianapolis was, uh, 364 days the city sleeps, and one day it has a race. Well, I may have said that, but that would be just regional humor. It certainly wasn't. Oh, no, I've, I've spoken very well in this town. Well, I, I, that's, and that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I just... And I did last time. It, it seems to me that, that you really have a, 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 an affection for me. Well, why, couldn't I, why shouldn't I be grateful with that wonderful public school system and public library system? You know, during the 30s, if you went to the library, is a librarian was so glad you were there, you know, it was going to help the little kids. You know, maybe you like this, maybe you like that. What are you interested in? You no, know, I was crazy about snakes for a while. I thought maybe I was going to be a herpetologist. And I was a librarian. Hey, that's a good idea. And then. <laughs> but it, it always gives me the impression that I, I, I think people thought that you didn't care about or didn't like the city. And, and obviously that's not true. Well, of course it's not true. As I would know, but I, what I what I said, I was graduation speaker at Butler. I don't know, three four years ago, I guess. And I said it was all here. People so smart, you can't believe it. People so dumb, you can't believe it. People so nice, you can't believe it. People so mean, you can't believe it. And books, 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 and lots of music. And what more could you want? There was during the 30s. It's, you know, I was in the, I mean, I'm not unhappy as frequently as other teen, teenagers are. 
and also the Great Depression was going on, so things at home were rather upset. And uh, there was jazz, and it was black musicians. Could you go? Oh, yes. Yeah, there was a place called Southern Barbecue. It's on Ridden Street, which was where white people would go listen to black jazz. So what'd you say? What'd you say about that friend your mother? No, they would have been playing the blues, and it would have been uh, usually a four-piece band. Mm-hmm. Piano, drum, uh, bass, uh, saxophone, and trumpet. But also, they're singing all the time, too. All of them. And it was beautiful, and, and uh, music's an enormous help to me right now. I can comfort myself with music with a CD right now. I've said I'm a humanist, but uh, music is proof that there is a God. <laughs> <laughs> years ago, I guess many years ago, you wrote a book called Canary in, in the Cat House. Yeah, the collection of short stories. And when I first started reading you when I, when I was a kid, I went looking for that book, and I was always told, it's out of print. And the only explanation I ever got was that you wrote things in that book that you no longer believed, and you were asked to have a pull. Not at all. Oh, okay. Well, what's the, the truth? What, what is this situation? And do you mind if I close this one? Uh, no, I just don't want to crap up her house with smoke. Okay. But, uh, you asked me. Canary and cows. Well, again, the religious right doesn't want my stuff read. Not that they've read it that much. They've just heard that it's, you know, that it's not all respect of God. And I, the biggest trouble I ever got, I, I mean, where people really raised hell, because I wrote a story, I forget which one it was, where time travel, guys get time travel to work and everything. And so they decide to check out the Bible story to find out if it's true about Jesus. Or so they go back. And yeah, it's all true. And there are these three crosses, and uh, Jesus is on the middle, and uh, he has said, it's a crucifixion story. But while they're there, they decide to measure him, and he's five foot six. Boy, did that... (laughs) (laughs) Why did that bother him? Because he's got to be five ten. He's got to be. Oh, he's got. <laughs> so he's a little guy. And yes. He should be a big guy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Dude, this was an insult. This was the most sacrilegious thing. And uh, I could have said his eyes weren't blue too. I didn't go that far. <laughs> but uh, uh, that they would blow their stock. And of course, uh, that must have been about the average size of a male back then. And. Richard Lionheart was about that size, you can tell from his armor. But the, this would. Uh, might as well shit in the middle of the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> so that story was in Canary and I don't remember. It may not have been in the collection. I don't think it is. So then what, what did happen with, with Canary? Because that. Nothing. It, it's simply a commercial venture, and, the, and if the sales drop below a certain level, well, pull it out. Because it's not even mentioned in, in uh, future books. And, you know, I mean, you know, yeah. it lists where, what you've written. And, yeah. Uh, no, there's no. No, it's, that's fine. It's, it's, I just forgot. I make that list. I guess I left it off. But I, no. <laughs> I, 
No, that's not true. So you wrote this story, and and the religious right went crazy. Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh Dutch Reformed, I guess. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And and when you're in that position where where people are firing at you, and you're taking uh, a very unpopular position, something you believe in, but something that's unpopular, what do you feel like when you're in the battle of that? Look, uh, Millions and millions of Americans just like me. It's not a lonely situation at all. And and it's people with very specific agendas who will go after a book or a movie or whatever. That's actually just, no, my situation is not remotely lonesome. This is kind of a vague question and and maybe you think of a good way, specific way to answer. But what did Indianapolis look like when you were a kid? I, I... you know, I, I one of the things I like to do um, when I'm out, I, I like look around um, antique stores, and I and I found this antique store that had a lot of postcards. And I'm looking at the Indianapolis, they had Indianapolis stuff, and they had one of the Claypool Hotel. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at this and thinking, this is beautiful. Yes, why is. isn't this here? And you know, why and the courthouse they, they, they took down a gorgeous courthouse. Yeah, why did they erase this? But uh, but tell me what it looked like. I mean, it was a utopia architecturally, and my father and grandfather designed a hell of a lot of it. <laughs> and uh, you know, we did a reunion of the class of 1940 last night. I was asking people, why did you leave town? You know, there's symphony orchestra, there's theaters, there's beautiful homes to live in and all that. And the best I could come up with is I think that the Great Depression so demoralized our parents and so reduced their own self-respect when, you know, plenty of rainfall, plenty of topsoil, lots of minerals in this enormously rich country. And what did the city looked like it was boarded up and I think that our parents were so upset and confused and lost not knowing what the hell to do with a failed capitalism and I don't know that we let that the town because our parents were so unhappy here and then from 1929 to 1941 that we got out of town but people at our reunion I mean there were people who came from Tulsa for God's sake Santa Barbara, me from Northampton, Massachusetts. Is that where you live now? Uh-huh. I really like this book because that? I learned more about you. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I guess I was trying to think of when I when I was a kid and I read all your books. Um, I guess I was I was interested in the, yeah. the fantasy and the mind of, of yeah. you know the things you would create, and now I'm more interested in the mind of the man who created them. And I very there. Just two passages here, and, and if you want to react to them, it'd be great. Yeah. I just think where we're, uh, you were talking about writing, and you said, I, I feel and think as much as you do, care about as many of the things as you care about, although most people don't care about them, you are not alone. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just such a, you know, you talk about the experience of writing, that is uh-huh. it was such a great comfort. Yeah, well, I lucked out because there, was, there, were, those, there were those people out there, and, and I know. Had your close personal friends is is perfectly wonderful writers who did not have the success I did, but all of us write what we must write, and then it becomes roulette. I mean, there is somebody like Stephen King, a friend. I like him. 
I respect what he does. Who can, you know, craft his stuff for market? But, uh, you know, almost all of us are helpless not to write what we do write. It's just a fatality there, and then you just have to see what the hell happens. And explain to your wife what went wrong. <laughs> the other passage was when you said when you were writing back to the woman who was pregnant and wanted enough it was a mistake to bring the baby and, and you were talking about the saints that you met and, and I think it's interesting yeah, because you seem to have a, a great belief in people well I've been lucky as have with them so it's interesting that uh, about Philip Roth new book is about betrayals and he himself apparently feels betrayed again and again he's a friend and he's helpless not, not to write what he wrote uh, but that is what the human stain is a very dark book about betrayals and all that I've seen betrayals on a large scale uh, but not on a personal scale I've seen this country betrayed I've seen Germany betrayed <laughs> twice is it? And uh, in my own division was betrayed. We were used as bait in the trap, I'm sure. Can you tell me more about that? We were, well, when I went to work with General Electric, my boss there, this was public relations, publicity, uh, was a colonel, had been a colonel. He, you know, he kept saying to me, why weren't you an officer? So, personality flaw. Well, I'd been a big shot at Cornell University. They're an officer in my fraternity and, and uh, became managing editor of the Cornell Daily Sun, which was, I think, his regular morning paper and all that. But uh, I was just kept a PFC and not through any personal fault because they had enough officers. They had enough non-coms and they stockpiled a whole bunch of us, college kids. Well, they sent me to Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Tech was well, then. So I studied mechanical engineering there while being stockpiled and, and being a PFC. And then the University of Tennessee to flunk thermodynamics again. And then they needed just grunts, just guys to carry rifles. They didn't need any sergeants. They didn't need any lieutenants. They, didn't, they just needed a human wave. And so we were all sent to infantry divisions, and I wound up in this crazy division, 106, which was based at Camp Atterbury. And the 106 had been stripped of all its enlisted men, but the non-coms and officers were still there, so there was no chance of promotion. So it was a division of college kids. And then we were, what, D-Day was in June, and in uh, October we were sent overseas, first to England and then to France. And by then, our armies were right on the borders of Germany in December. And so we replaced that tough D-Day outfit, 2nd Division. You know, we were Green Division, college kids, demoralized with no chance of promotion. <laughs> and uh, actually, I was an infantryman, a scout, a battalion scout, without infantry training. I <laughs> had artillery training. So we took over their positions in a perfectly quiet front. And then the Germans staged their last big attack right through us. And Jesus says, I mean, we didn't have any tanks. It was overcast, so we didn't have any planes either. And the Germans just knocked the shit out of them. Came right through and, and just tore the division to pieces. And the order came down from the regimental commander 
he had surrendered. They captured him. And so he ordered us to surrender, which is perfectly illegal orders. You know, it's like saying commit suicide. (laughs) 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 And uh, so, hell, there were fragments of the division wandering all through the countryside in the snow. And this was intentional because the Germans headed for Antwerp. You know, bizarre. But with what all, all their tanks they had left, which were pretty damn good tanks, so believe me, when I was wandering around, they hadn't rounded us up yet. I mean, we were being hunted like animals. They, uh, uh, where the hell Americans might still be. But the front was, I don't know, when I was captured, the front was probably 30, 40 miles away. We didn't even know about that. But the German penetration was very long and narrow. Not a good idea. And so the last of the tanks were captured. And the last of the young troops were killed or captured. And that was intentional. On our part? Yes, to have them come right through us. And, and way over, attacked far farther than that. But, but their flanks were completely unprotected, which you don't want to do. So what happened to you? I was captured. And with hundreds of others or killed or whatever. But we were, I mean, how we no sooner got there and, and we were fight, fighting for our lives, you know, and we thought maybe that's what everybody had been putting up with on the front and not at all. But I, I think that was, they could never say so. It's like a gambit in chess. It's, he tempted the guy with a pawn and he'd lost the game. So you were captured. Did, did you end up as a prisoner of war? Yeah. For how long? Well, from December till actually uh, the war ended uh, May 8th, or approximately, and political when the war actually ended in Europe. The Soviet Union said one thing, we said another, but it was around May 8th. But then I was in the Russian zone, what became the Russian zone. I saw them come in and they locked us up and, uh, and then they put us in a regular jail, <laughs> roadblock. And then they traded us one for one across the Alps for, for their own people who were in the hands of the Americans. But so that was, but there wasn't anything to eat. So it was uh, onerous on that account. But my God, the length of time some guys during the Vietnam War were prisoners, unbelievable. You know, years. Yeah. Five months. But again, we were at hard labor because under the uh, Geneva Convention on the treatment of war, prisoners of war, Privates must work for their keep. Non-coms don't have to, and officers. But actually, that was it was so much more interesting to be working in a city than to be out in the countryside. You know, it's behind barbed wire with just your own people to talk to. So, what did you do? What kind of labor did they have to do? Well, it, worked, it was factory work, and it was. Uh, Packing and shipping food and, and uh, canned food and, and sweeping floors and repairing busted windows and stuff like that. We had to walk to work every day. In fact, it was quite a distance. But then after the city was bombed and burned to the ground, and the Brits did that, we didn't do it. We were digging out corpses out of cellars. There were no air raid shelters in Dresden. There certainly not many. And uh, so people just simply went down into ordinary cellars like what's under this house. And uh, about 135,000 people died essentially of suffocation. Because 
houses collapsing. No, and no, the city became one column of flame, so there was nothing to breathe. But the Brits did it. We didn't. So now I have a better idea where Slaughterhouse Five comes from. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really was an extreme. But I wasn't Billy Pilton. I a good soldier. That's what I said last night. He's just the only cop who been used to and answers some questions, really. Is roughly what I said. I was just writing out here what exactly I said, but that's close enough. I sent this to Meiji a couple of months ago. You mentioned in here that you didn't come back for your 50th dream. No. Right. I had Lyme disease. Oh. But you pretty typically do come back for your No. This would be the only reunion I've ever attended. Why did you decide to come back for this one? It was time. We were talking about betrayal, and I interrupted you. And, and if you could go back and finish that thought, that uh, you never experienced, you were saying that uh, you hadn't experienced. And I've, I've had institutional betrayals mm-hmm. of my division, for instance, serving my country. It is, well, it's cockamamie. The things that the Congress will do, particularly the House of Representatives. But no, I personally have. I've never been seriously double-crossed, and I don't know you'd ask, have to ask him because he doesn't say so overtly, but it's implied it is, it's about how treacherous people are. It can be. I don't, I don't think so. So it's been a good This has been great. I mean, it's been a good life. Well, I think so. What I said about the Second World War is that uh, it was a great adventure. I wouldn't have missed any of it. Boy, I saw a whole lot of shit. And uh, heard a lot. Now, as we were finally captured, as uh, we were marching into Germany, and the victorious troops are going the other way, you know, riding on top of the tanks and the highest kites and everything. Just, that was interesting. Did you see the movie Saving Private Ryan? No. And I. Uh, I got a friend named Howard Zinn who was a bombardier during the Second World War, and he didn't, he didn't like any movies like that, neither do I, because it makes war reputable. But the war you fought... It was a just was, war. It was reputable, yeah. The war itself isn't. I've said that, the, you know, there's great resistance to Catch-22. It finally became the most popular of all American post-World War II novels. Howard was a good friend of mine. Uh, but it teaches a lesson which people don't like to hear that a, a military person in even the most just of wars which the Second World War was find themselves <laughs> behaving in manners which are disgusting and insane they say in here that the, the Crown Hill won't get you yeah. do you have plans? Or? Oh, I don't care no and I don't mind I would uh, I don't care I'm a humanist I have no fear of death and uh, don't care Walt Whitman or a great writer myself as some Englishmen realized what a great poet he was so he was really more respected over there than here because they were really into poetry over there which Americans have never been and uh, so a group of young Englishmen passed the hat for him over there came home and found him, and I think we were living in some sort of cold water flat in Camden. <laughs> I forget where. So they gave him this money, and he blew most of it on a mausoleum for 
No, but Henry, I've seen Thoreau's tombstone. It's about six inches, maybe, on a side. A little plug in the ground, about this high, says Henry. <laughs> Will you be buried? No, I'll be, well, I'll be cremated. You'll be cremated, yeah. Yeah, so, but I saw a friend, I had a friend, one of my POW friends, with a wonderful man, Tom Jones, buried in Arlington. And so I saw how that went. You know how many people are buried in Arlington every day? Seven. Was that right? And uh, I know Mockett is off. It's not to be buried there, and I, I, I don't think there's anything cynical about the operation there, but there's a beautiful big building for families to gather, you know, different rooms for you from the Jones family or whatever. Uh, but then you go out there, and uh, there is a chaplain representing your particular face, if you have and guys wearing, if you're in the Army, they're wearing dress blues, which I hardly ever seen. You know, they're beautiful. They got stripes down the pants and all that. And they got rifles. And they fire them off. Another guy blows taps. It's good. I don't for it. And Tom Jones, BFC, 423. <laughs> uh, deserved it. And, but what they do is they essentially, they want you to be cremated, arrive cremated. And they essentially bury you with a post hole digger. And I guess they put a can down there. Uh, but the marker is, is quite handsome and dignified. And I kind of like to be in Arlington. It's, it's just for the sake of that, you know, PFC for 23rd Infantry. I think growing up, you have the disadvantages of the Depression and, and all. But I think more focus on what's important in life. And I wonder if you look at kids growing up today like you know there's there's so many distractions there's so many things that, that take people's eye off the ball well the, look the biggest industry in this country is drugs i mean there are salespeople everywhere you know even in andover and accident the finest of prep schools you know and the greatest of universities it's an enormous industry and again we have progress this is chemistry. <laughs> and uh, no, but to talk about money, you know, a linebacker gets three million. <laughs> and your dad, who, you know, is that honest workman of some kind? It's nothing. Yeah, money madness. And there are all these drugs. And uh, they are so available. And uh, what to do about that is uh, take the profit out of it, which is what they did with alcohol. I mean, that's not a good idea either, but I. It is, uh, but what can they believe in? Well, they believe in the Bill of Rights. They believe in the Declaration of Independence. And what I want the ACLU here to do, the chapter, is to be the first one is to come out full bore for the Second Amendment and to get everybody into a well-disciplined militia. <laughs> <laughs> Try to give them all muskets or something. Yeah, but they got a drill. They got a drill. They, they've got to uh, learn to take orders. Where's your gut? I don't want one. You read the Second Amendment? <laughs> <laughs>
Have you ever, aside from when you were in the army, have you ever owned a gun? Oh, of course. My father was a gun collector. And sure, I used to go out to, I used to be able to go out to Fort Benjamin Harrison if you were a kid and your dad was with you. uh, And uh, they'd give you Springfield and and, uh, ammunition and you'd fire on the range out there. So we'd be really ready when the next war came along. But when the whole class of 19... 40 at Shoreditch and all previous classes pacifists we were not going to get suckered into another war in Europe first world war was about absolutely nothing but I think people were gassed and them drowning face down in water filled shell holes and draped over the barbed wire it was about absolutely nothing no we're never going to do that again but then a just war came along which was in a way, a national tragedy, because ever since we've thought of ourselves as good guys, <laughs> which we were. Are you really never going to write again? I don't know. Is that wrote this? Is that? No, I'm still, I didn't expect to live this long. And, and uh, so, you know, my, it's interesting. Is the writer's best years, Ryan Hemingway Steinbeck, during the 20s and early 30s, they wrote better than they had any right to. <laughs> you know, they were just, just winging it. And that stops. And chess masters are, are through about 28 or 30. And I, the, I think Bobby Fisher's secret, really, and what our, he was, this company's produced two chess geniuses I know of, Paul Morphy's and and more views through about 20, 29, 30. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed. <laughs>